Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey, well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterland, and I'm your host. Today we have a very special guest. His name is Robert Cox, and he is the author of the Mindful Recovery Podcast as well as the Listening to Autism Podcast. And today he's going to talk about using mindfulness in recovery. What is mindfulness? What's some of the research around mindfulness and how you can use mindfulness to get started in the recovery process or to improve your recovery process. So stay tuned and enjoy. Hello, everybody. My name is Dwayne Osterlin with the Addicted Mind Podcast, and my guest today is Robert Cox from the Mindful Recovery Podcast and the Listening to Autism Podcast. And today we're going to talk about mindfulness and recovery. I'm very excited to have you on, Robert. Thanks for having me, Dwayne. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. So I wanted to just really jump right in, and I know one of your specialties is mindfulness, and I think that we hear a lot about that all over the internet. I think it's kind of the rage. Everybody's talking about it. But a lot of people, you know, they hear mindfulness, but they really don't know what it is or how to define it or what it looks like. And they have different pictures of what mindfulness is. So I would love to just kind of talk to you a little bit about like, what is mindfulness? Yeah, there's a lot of confusion out there about that. I run into it frequently that, you know, either they haven't heard about it or their image of it is you know, a monk in saffron robes sitting on top of a mountain somewhere. And, <laughs> right. and so, well, it's kind of related to that. Or they've seen people with, you know, lots of crystals surrounding them and doing the mindfulness thing. And they're like, yeah, I'm not all into that. And I'm like, it really doesn't have to be that far out or that complicated either. You don't have to find a mountain. You don't have to use crystals. All you have to be able to do is breathe. And then they start to buy into it once I simplify it a little bit. Okay. So I also get a lot of buy-in when we talk about the brain science image, you know, about what actually we know from research about these methods. But 
fundamentally, you know, the difference between mindfulness and meditation is narrow. Meditation would be more like a guided visualization in my mind, where mindfulness is just paying attention to that one thing in that one moment to reduce the anxiety, you know, of what the future might bring or what the past has brought. And so mindfulness really is about focus and attention and being able to regulate your brain by regulating your body in that one single moment. Okay, so being very present in the moment. I've kind of heard, and I don't, you can tell me what you think about this. I've kind of heard that, you know, meditation in some ways has a goal and mindfulness is more about just being present. I don't know if that's if that would be accurate. Yeah, that's accurate. I think what I was kind of saying when I said meditation is more kind of a guided visualization type thing. So there is some goal. So a lot of times I will start with a brief mindfulness exercise, like just focusing, centering, checking in with the body, getting ourselves grounded. And then I'll move into a like a meditation which is designed to help the individual create a holding space for one type of thing or another, right? So then we might be visualizing, say, a positive parenting image who is telling me, seeing myself as a child and telling me that I'm loved and that I'm wanted and these positive messages that I didn't get that began all this, you know, slide down the slippery slope of addiction. Okay, okay. So if someone is struggling with addiction, how can they use mindfulness as a tool? How would it help them, I guess? If someone is, you know, they're addicted to drugs or a behavior like sex or pornography, how could they use mindfulness to help them? You know, it really starts with the cravings and beginning to recognize those in a very bodily way. Like when I start to crave, where do I feel at first? So I use mindfulness a lot to put people in touch with their body states right in that moment. Where do you feel tension? When you start to get anxious, where do you hold that tension first? Is it in your gut? Is it in your shoulders? I have several clients who say it's in their fists. Let's become very aware of that. And then we can start to get a hold of that craving state early on and use the mindfulness just to check in and kind of breathe through that moment and really be able to decide how we're going to act on the world rather than reacting to the craving. So it kind of slows them down instead of them just reacting. You know, I have this urge, I'm just going to react to it. When you have mindfulness, you can kind of slow that process down a little bit and absolutely notice what's going on. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Absolutely. And I think the sooner we can recognize the process, you know, Like you deal a lot with sexual addictions, and that's a very much a process addiction. So the earlier we can recognize that we're starting that process, the better off we're going to be. And it is about just slowing down enough that I can begin to make a decision and keep the front part of my brain online and not be reacting out of that limbic emotional brain, which is not very good at reasoning. And so the further down that process I get before I put the brakes on, the harder it's going to be. So we really want to work 
when I work with them in office, we work a lot on recognizing where I feel that, how I feel that, what my triggers are, being very careful when I've noticed one of my triggers in my zone, that I'm paying attention to those body states, that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, one of the things in treating addiction at our agency that I found with clients is that people with addictions have very active minds, if that makes sense. They're always kind of thinking ahead or in the past, and they're never in the present moment. And when we use mindfulness, it really helps them kind of just slow down, be present, what's happening right now. And that seems to be really, really helpful to them to be able to make a different decision. I think really what you're describing is trauma mind to a large extent. And that's why I believe that trauma is underneath every addiction. And because the mind does run a million miles an hour and it gets wrapped up in either those critical tapes or anxiety and worry about what might be right. And all of that's based in this trauma that we experience early on that, you know, made the world feel very unsafe. And so, yeah, mindfulness becomes very, very important in slowing down that process of the mind that wants to run, you know, the Buddhists call it monkey mind with the monkeys running around inside my head at a thousand miles an hour. If I just pay attention to the breathing and let them be the monkeys they want to be, it's going to slow all of them down enough I can start even beginning to question where they're coming from and dealing with those issues instead of just going on autopilot and reacting to that space by reaching for whatever substance it is. Yeah, definitely. I've seen the same thing with, well, I've seen that in my own life using mindfulness and then seeing that with clients as well, how they really just kind of slow down and their thought process becomes more focused on what they actually want, not just maybe what the addiction wants, but It really gives them that space to go, do I really want this? Can I tolerate this urge for a little while until it passes? And they practice that mindfulness, and that seems to be really helpful. It's helpful not only in the moment, but also in building that ability to realize that I have resistance, right? So like you said, it's like, can I survive this craving? And the more they do the mindfulness and survive a craving, the more they begin to build hope in the fact that they can survive the next one and the next one and the next one. Yeah. And it's pretty amazing to see them be able to do that. They really feel like they get some control back in their life at the same time letting go, you know, and that's really, really awesome. I have a question about, you know, mindfulness has really been a lot in the news and actually a lot in there's been a lot of research done about it. Do you know anything of the current research that's happening and stuff like that that's, you know, supporting mindfulness? Absolutely. I mean, a lot of this I've done for my work in autism, and it will be coming out in my book, The Life Recovery Method, about the treatment of autism as a trauma. And the addictions research bears out the same, that what mindfulness does actually is, well, when we get stressed out, when we get in that anxiety-ridden place, Our limbic region turns on and it secretes like cortisol and adrenaline and all these drugs that are intended to hype us up, make our senses like super sharp and get us ready to either pick up a stick and hit the tiger or run away. Right. Right. So that's the fight or flight mode. But when we start to focus on our bodies, what happens with mindfulness is that the cortisol starts to be lowered and the adrenaline starts to go down and good chemicals like serotonin, dopamines, and oxytocin, which is really the primary one, start to be secreted in the brain. When we just start to slow down and focus on the regulation of our body and brain that way with mindfulness, oxytocin levels go way up. And oxytocin really fights, counters the effects of the cortisol and the adrenaline in the body. 
So, you know, a really good example of that is when we are with somebody we love and care about and we're bonded to and we hug them for more than 20 seconds, we feel like our whole body start to relax. That's that oxytocin release. Right. Definitely. Yeah. So with the mindfulness, you're really changing the brain chemistry, being able to do something that it directly impacts how the body's responding. I mean, that's really amazing. It is. And it goes even beyond that, because we know that in trauma therapy, we have this saying that, you know, the neurons that fire together, wire together. So if I'm a vet and I've been in Afghanistan in firefights for the past six months, then loud bangs are probably wired very closely to the neurons for danger with me, right? So that's why we have signs up at 4th of July in a vet's yard that says, please, no fireworks. A vet with PTSD lives here, right? Mm -hmm. But what we know is that mindfulness actually can break those neuron connections and begin to rewire them if we can use it. Like I said, if we recognize early enough what our triggers are and we stop that process through breathing and slowing down and just saying to myself, you know, this isn't what it feels like. It's going to be okay. You know, because of the way trauma gets stored in the brain without going into a huge amount of detail, the limbic region, you know, shuts down the forefront of the brain where all of our reasoning happens. And then the memories can't be stored properly. So they don't get a timestamp. So all of that trauma comes back to me and feels like it's happening right here, right now. But if I can breathe in that space and if I've trained myself to slow down, I can keep my limbic region offline. And while I'm having that experience, begin telling myself, no, this isn't happening now. This happened back in 2013 when I was in Afghanistan or whatever. And that begins to take the power out of those PTSD memories. So it actually, mindfulness actually rewires the brain also, which is really the most fascinating part for me. It is really fascinating, and it's fascinating to see the research as they're doing all the brain studies and stuff like that. It's really neat to see it because I think it's really cutting edge. What about, you know, if someone who is struggling with addiction, this is a question I get a lot, is, you know, they do one mindfulness meditation and they kind of want change, but how long does a person need to do mindfulness or how much, you know, do they need to do to be able to start to receive some of the benefits of doing mindfulness? You know, it really depends on their level of buy-in. If they're doing it once and they're not noticing a difference right away and then they're like, well, why bother? It's not going to happen for them. But I'll tell you this, with respect to autism, and addictions works much the same way, but I've had two kids in schools recently in the past six months who both of them were having episodes of aggression and meltdown and just overload that were becoming aggressive towards other students and teachers, right? Right. Within Because they both bought in and because we integrated the schools where they had to practice in the morning at school with a counselor and the afternoon at school with a counselor, and then they went home and practiced with mom at night, so three times a day for anywhere from 10 to 20 minutes. And within weeks, both of them were reporting, school was writing me saying, can we use this exercise with other kids? The, the, really change, is, the change is significant if you buy into it. And you don't say, well, I can't keep my mind still. See, so many people confuse the idea of mindfulness is not that we control our thoughts and emotions. That's impossible. Our thoughts and emotions are going to rise up because that's what our mind does. Right. The point of mindfulness is to keep my thoughts and emotions from controlling me. Right. So if we can get people past that point where they think that their mind has to be perfectly quiet and perfectly still – 
and we can get them to buying in. I've seen this just happen within a week, two weeks. You know, I had another individual that came to me that was so caught up with anxiety, serious anxiety that they would not leave their house. They would not drive. They would not go into a crowded store, got their husband to bring them to my office for the appointments. But by week two, they were driving themselves to the appointments. And by week four, they were looking for jobs at places like Walmart. That's amazing. But this person bought in totally and was practicing 30 minutes, three times a day. You know, I mean, it really does rewire the brain, but we really have to devote ourselves to practice. And that's one of the things I found that's the hardest, especially with addicts is, you know, kind of getting some of that buy in. And usually I'm letting them know, you know, just practice two or three minutes. Even if you just do a two or three minute meditation, just do that once a day just to get them started. But once they start to see the benefits of it, like they start to see that, oh, this is actually helping me, the buy-in starts to increase and they start to really go, wow, I really like this process. Yeah, you know, there's an app on the iPhone. Well, it's on all the phones called Chill. And I recommend that highly to all of my patients. It's free. And what it does is it allows you to set a little thing that goes off at random, maybe three or four times a day. And it will shoot a message onto your phone screen that says, like, can you feel your feet grounded to the earth? Or can you stop and take three short breaths? Or what's going through your mind at this moment? So it's just these little messages meant to ground you back to yourself in that moment. And I recommend to them to get that app on their phone because and set it for four times a day. And when it goes off, spend at least 60 seconds doing the mindful breathing and focusing on the question it throws at you. Right. You know, it's a wonderful little free app that really helps. I have people that don't meditate 30, 40 minutes at a time during a day. They just do that app. And I've seen that make profound differences. One of the problems with addicts is that we too often ask them to remove the only fear management system they've ever had, right? Yes. An anxiety management system they've ever had without putting anything else in place and just saying, you know, white knuckle it until you can get through it. That doesn't work so well. Right. You know? Yeah. I mean, their whole body system, you know, most of the addicts I work with, you know, there's a huge history of trauma, like you said earlier. And so their body is kind of wired for those responses, those very intense emotions. And yeah, without giving them any tools to be able to manage that, it's incredibly difficult to stay sober. And I think mindfulness is an incredibly, I wouldn't say easy, but accessible tool that someone can use. And in the case of medications, addictions like opioids or heroin or alcohol or methamphetamines, we know that these drugs literally change the structure of the brain. So we're asking them to hold a lot when their brain's not as functional as it was before they started the addiction. Because that addiction, you know, alcohol, for instance, reduces the center of the brain responsible for pleasure. So you don't feel pleasure as intensely or as much, you know, unless you're using the alcohol and increases the regions of the brain, the activity in those regions responsible for anxiety. So we're asking them to come off of this drug into a state where their ability to feel pleasure is reduced and their anxiety is going to be heightened over what the, you know, neurotypical individual would be. So certainly we can't do that without putting in some supports, you know? 
Right. And you know what I've also found, too, is like you said earlier, is like the ability to feel pleasure is decreased. Using mindfulness to focus on pleasurable emotions and to kind of grow those emotions, too. I've done that a lot where as they kind of get mindfulness and paying attention to their breath and doing that breath work and being able to have that attention, getting them to pay attention to positive feelings. And a lot of times they skip over those positive feelings and they're right in the negative feelings, if that makes sense. And that's what they're paying attention to. Absolutely. Well, and part of that's because those negative feelings are right there at the forefront. That's what we've been suppressing all this time with the addiction, you know. And so one other exercise that I use that I find really helpful with people is Let's create a safe space with kind of a guided mindfulness meditation exercise where you're probably familiar with this exercise where you create some kind of a box Mm -hmm. or safe space where I can put these like painful emotions and memories and lock them away until I'm in a safe place and I can take them out and deal with them a little more. And that really helps, I think, people understand that, you know, we don't have to live in that kind of pain all the time. We can choose when we're going to take that out and deal with it. And then in conjunction with the mindfulness exercises that teach me, you know, ways of creating a safe place that is pleasurable for me, like meditations that I have or, you know, like a vacation at the beach meditation or an evening in the woods meditation where you hear the loons and the crickets and a nice stream. And you can create your own safe space that way that allows you to hold maybe without the drugs. Right. So if you were working with someone, what would be the first step for them in using mindfulness? If someone was listening to this podcast and then they're like, I think I could really use this. I think I need this. What would you tell them to do? Start with your breath. And if you're having anxiety, panic attacks, one really good way of doing that is just a simple grounding exercise where you start with, I talk about the regulated breaths. I like to do a count of three as I breathe in slow and then hold and then a count of two or three out so that what I've got is this very even breath and I'm not like hyperventilating or anything, which is the temptation. Mm -hmm. And just focusing on that breath going in and out and how it feels in my body. And then I ask people to do three of those regulated breaths and then look around them and say quietly to themselves three things they see. And then do another set of two or three of those regulated breaths and then Listen around them and say quietly three things they can hear and then finish with that regulated breathing. And what that does is anxiety is always about the fear of what might be, right? Mm -hmm. Even the anxiety of addiction is often about can I get what I need? Am I going to be able to get what I need? If I can't, how am I going to manage this? So if I'm thinking about what is around me and grounding myself in the present, it is not possible for me to be rooted in what might be. You know, so that's a really good exercise for just releasing yourself from that immediate anxiety. And I tell people, you know, if it doesn't work completely the first time, do it 30 more times. Do whatever you have to do to just get through that moment, that craving, that intense kind of anxiety. Right. And once they start to do that, that exercise sounds great because it does takes you out of your thoughts. You're very much in the present moment. You're using your senses, your sense of hearing, your sense of sight to stay present and grounded. That's a great, great start. And especially for anyone who's beginning recovery, these are simple tools that you can start to use and practice and get better at. So that's kind of where I start with everybody is let's start with the grounding and then let's really do the regulated breathing and just pay attention to where I'm feeling tension in my body right now. 
what thoughts and emotions are maybe coming up, but not following them down any rabbit holes, just kind of letting them go, letting them be, returning to that breath. That's really the beginning place, is just with the breath and the body, because that's what is going to lead us down those more advanced paths later. So we really want to get that fundamental down. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you so much, Robert. How sure. can anybody get more information and resources from you or find you? And You can find me at www.liferecoveryconsulting.org. And my podcasts, my book coming out, all that stuff is available just on the website there. And you can certainly contact me through that website. And I'm more than an- willing to answer questions. So... Oh, thank you so much, Robert, for coming on and sharing your wisdom with everybody. I really appreciate it. And hopefully in the future, maybe you'll come back on again and we can talk more about this issue. Sure, I'd love to. It was fun. Thanks, Dwayne. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Addicted Mind podcast. Please support us by going to iTunes and leaving us a review. Every little bit helps. Also, if you'd like to support us directly, you can go to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash the addicted mind. There you can support us directly and help offset the cost of producing this podcast and help us get this information to everybody who needs it. So take care, have a wonderful day, and I'll see you next week. I'm Madeline, and I'm the host of the Happiest Sober Podcast. I got sober in my 20s after a decade of gray area drinking, and the greatest plot twist of all time was realizing that alcohol, the thing that I thought made my life the most happy and fun and exciting, was actually the exact thing preventing me from living my happiest and best life. My mom is 40 years sober, and she joins me on my podcast very often. I like to call her my part-time co-host, and I also bring you solo episodes where I share my top tips, tricks, and mindset shifts in sobriety, and lots of how to's for navigating all the things sober from weddings to parties to holidays to bachelorette parties to trips. I'm also joined by so many guests who come on and share their sober stories and they're all so, so inspiring. I'm here to show you that life doesn't end when you quit drinking. In fact, it's very much the opposite. And no matter what your relationship was with alcohol, life can be the absolute happiest when you're sober. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can listen to Happiest Sober Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.